This is episode 14, Why Wildfires Matter. Welcome to Why Blank Matters, where we explore why small topics have big impacts. I'm your host, Amber Williams. And I'm your host, Kendra Clark. If you're new here, welcome. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe so you can make sure you have all our latest updates. I looked up how to start a wildfire, and I got 48,000 matches. (laughs) That's really terrible. As all of our jokes are. I feel like they keep getting worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so today we're discussing wildfires and why they matter. So the first thing is, what is a wildfire? Because we obviously assume that people know, but uh, it is an uncontrolled fire that often occurs in a wildland, but can also consume houses and agricultural resources. Um, it also can be called a forest fire, vegetation fire, or a brush fire. And wildfires can be both man-made or natural. Right. And they're not all bad. Some of them are a necessary part of the ecosystem, but the ones that are caused by humans are typically bad. <laughs> typically, yes. <laughs> and 80 to 90% are started by humans, often due to human error. So an unintended campfire, discarded cigarettes, or just straight up arson. <laughs> but some natural causes of wildfires are usually like dry brush and lightning. I'm assuming, are there any other causes of natural wildfires? There are. You can actually have an accumulation of dead matter on like a forest floor. That sounds really gross. And that's leaves, twigs, you know, trees that have fallen down. And sometimes they can create so much heat, they actually spontaneously combust Really? Really. It's crazy. Um, But they can also be caused through down power lines, Mm -hmm. um, electrical issues, and then uh, lightning is a good portion of that. Okay. In order for a fire to burn, you need three things. You have to have fuel. So some type of combustible material. You need heat. That is a source that's responsible for the initial ignition of the fire. It also requires oxygen, so air typically contains 21% oxygen, and most fires require at least 16% to burn. Hmm. But part of needing oxygen is why some areas tend to have worse wildfires than others. Obviously, there's a lot of factors that play into wildfires, and one of the factors is geography. So wildfires are more inclined to go uphill, so if you're up on top of a hill... Like, if that's where you live, like, you're going to be at more dangerous spot than it than if you're at the bottom of the hill. In California, where you have hills or mountains and the Santa Ana winds, then it tends to just fan the flame, per se. As opposed to Texas, what's, what's our statistic? Do we have anything on Texas? Yeah, so we often think of California when we think of wildfires. Um, but Texas actually had more wildfires than any other state. Um, California was number two, but because of all those other factors with the Santa Ana winds, um, also the dried out aquifers that we talked about with beavers, all that leads California to have the most acres burned. So even though Texas has more wildfires total, California had three times more acres burned than Texas. Gotcha. Um, So that makes a big deal. And in 2019, there were roughly... 
36,000 wildfires that burned about 4.3 million acres. Wait, what year is this? This is this year so far. One of the craziest things I learned about is that there can actually be fire tornadoes. Oh my goodness, yes. This is like, I didn't realize that this was a real thing until we started doing the research for this. No, it it sounds like like Sharknado, like something that was made up for a sci-fi movie. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, But they form when the wind around a fire begins to spin. Um, And they're rare, but they can be very destructive um, due to causing rapid spread of fire. (laughs) Um, it's so. like a flamethrower for like, it's nature's flamethrower. <laughs> I love that. So um, wildfires can also have their own like microcosm of weather. So they can produce their own type of weather around in the local area. I don't know what that looks like, but I read in my research that that happens. So, yeah. And the deadliest fire that's ever happened in U.S. history was the Peshtigo fire that happened in Wisconsin and 1871 it ignited on october 8th and burned approximately 1.2 million acres and killed at least 1100 people but some estimates put it closer to 2500 1100 or 2500 people holy cow um but the interesting thing about it is it actually occurred the same day as the great chicago fire which was more prominent in the news but had significantly less deaths it had less deaths. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And that was, yeah, that was also 1871 because I think I mentioned that in the Prohibition yeah. episode. Um, but yeah, so it was kind of weird that they happened at the same time. But we often hear about the Great Chicago Fire, but not this one. Right. And I I mentioned in our Instagram Live the other day that the city fires were part of how we built our infrastructure for water and sewage. Um, so it wasn't clean water driving that. It was putting out fires so so economically the national institute of standards and technology which is part of the u.s department of commerce they state that the annual total economic burden of wildfires is estimated between 71.1 billion to 347.8 billion um and so the cost and losses depend on so cost they look at all the infrastructure needed to put out fires. They look at like educational material. There's like a giant list of things you wouldn't even think about that they put into that. Um, and then losses, of course, is the majority of what the economic cost is. So that's loss of homes, loss of um, farmland, loss mm-hmm. of lives, even. Um, and. And Headwater Economics stated that half of those costs are paid at a local level. So it's not your state or federal government that's really having to live with the impacts of that. It's really your people within your community. Wow. You know, the reason I came to understand that wildfires wildfires were important is because when I first moved here, I started a meetup. And we had somebody that was in, like, wildlife and fish and also somebody from Australia and they were talking about not the me though. <laughs> they were talking about the importance of of wildfires, and I was like, "What?" And I was like, "That's crazy." So it was just crazy that I learned that. But uh, the one gentleman from Australia talked about how Australia got so good at fighting, wild, like preventing wildfires, that when they finally did have one, because our 
ecosystem does rely on them to some extent it was massive and it just killed so many people so they learned not to fight or not to prevent all wire wildfires but um to kind of control like when they might be uh affecting loss of life or loss of property yeah and honestly if, if you look at the national park service they all have like fire plans pretty much on how to deal with a wildfire but they also do what's called prescribed burns so they have a whole system of how they will actually intentionally burn parts of the forest to help prevent those bigger fires from happening later. And it's a process of treating the land by very carefully applying fire to burn away the vegetation. Right. Um, and it helps reduce some of the excessive amount of brush and encourages some new growth. Right. So the new growth happens. It burns out all the infections, like any diseases that the trees might be carrying mm-hmm. or uh, things of that nature. So, And natural fires are important because they do clear out the dead wood and other materials, but it also returns important nutri- nutrients back into the forest soil that was previously being stored in all that dead matter. Um, it also clears thick growth so sunlight can reach the floor, mm-hmm. which obviously you need sunlight for plants to grow. And there are also trees that have evolved to need fire to reproduce. Their seeds actually require fire to germinate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so an example is the lodgepole pine and the eucalyptus plant. I didn't realize that eucalyptus, eucalyptus needed that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there was also a study in Tallahassee, and they studied an area over nearly 40 years. And during that 40-year time frame, they intentionally did not let any of the land burn. Okay. And what they found out is that plant diversity in that area fell by 90%. Wow. So it just shows how much all those different plants need those fires to be able to survive. Um, They even had one species of bird that completely disappeared as well. Really? Yeah. And for some of you may be like, oh, but what about the animals? Um, Like, I remember Gatlinburg had a big fire a few years ago. And there was, like, all the pictures of, like, some deer, which is, like, sad because I love deer. Right. Um, But most animals are actually able to escape. And animals are really smart. And Mm -hmm. they have this inherent survival instinct. So most of them get out of the way before the fires even get bad enough because their instincts are like, oh, I need to go. And that's what they do. Uh, It's funny that you mentioned the fires a few years ago, because after I moved here, I remember Savannah being very hazy. And the reason for that was all the smoke from the mountains up north, like in North Carolina, were burning. And so all that smoke was coming down from North Carolina. And and it was just making Savannah real hazy. I was like, that's crazy. That is coming that far. Yeah, there's even one type of beetle that uses specialized infrared radiation sensors to detect burning fires and they actually love forest fires what yeah so when there's a fire they'll go find it and when they get there they'll try to find another beetle to mate with and they lay their eggs in the scorched trees what's the term for people like um like a pyro pyromaniac yeah they're pyromaniacs (laughs) they are well part of the reason they like it is because Basically, the trees don't have their normal protective mechanisms. So, like, sap and things like that that protect it from bugs and other creatures okay. don't exist because of the fire. The fire burns it away, so it makes it more makes it more habitable um, for the beetle. So, wait, wait, wait. How does it make it more habitable? Like, how does a fire make it more because appealing? Because, I, I don't know. It just <laughs> likes it. 
<laughs> All right. I, I guess it would rather deal with the fire than the sap. Okay. So next we're going into the health of people and also the environment because of wildfires. Yeah, because obviously wildfire does a lot of damage, but it also affects people's health. Obviously, you think about the smoke, the most identifiable aspect of that and how it would affect respiration and your lungs. Mm -hmm. And wildfire smoke contains, obviously it has carbon monoxide, but it also has particulate matter, nitrogen oxide, and some various organic compounds as well. But the particulate matter is one of the things that tends to have some of the most immediate health effects. Particulate matter is associated with adverse respiratory health mm-hmm. issues. Um, also, and then with fires, you also have burns, you have heat-induced illnesses, uh, particularly for firefighters. You have increased rates of admissions for cardiovascular complaints and eye irritation. But one of the more interesting things I found is that there was a study... They found that high levels of exposure can even impair the immune system of children. Uh, Stanford University tested blood of children exposed to wildfire smoke blown in from Fresno, and they found changes in a gene that develops and functions part of their T-cells, and it puts the children at greater risk of developing allergies or infection because the T-cells are like the peacekeeper of the immune system, and so... Basically, exposure to that wildfire is changing that T-cell. And then, obviously, there are also mental health effects of wildfires. Uh, The American Psychological Association has an entire section about recovering from wildfires. But more specifically, there was a study in Australia by the University of Adelaide. And they found that 12 months after the fires they had, 42% of the population exposed to wildfires were classified as potential psychiatric cases, which is two times more than that of non-exposed people. And obviously, property damage and physical injury during fires can were significantly associated with psychopathology. So you have PTSD, depression, increased symptoms of anxiety, trouble sleeping. But for the average person to say, you know, we're here in Savannah, Georgia... Even just watching the wildfires on TV can cause what's called vicarious traumatization. And it basically has symptoms suggestive of PTSD in people who have not actually been exposed themselves to tragedy. And it's only through media exposure. So in addition to the carbon dioxide and the mental health aspect, one of the things I learned was how NASA tracks wildfires. And, but during this, I learned, I learned about carbon monoxide. So it's really interesting and I don't entirely understand it. So if there's any um, environmental enthusiasts listening, we'd love to hear from you on this topic. But so there's some different ways that parts of the world respond to carbon monoxide or wildfires. So in parts of South America and Africa, wildfires will increase the carbon monoxide in the atmosphere. But in America and China, it creates the opposite response. So somehow wildfires decrease the amount of carbon monoxide in the atmosphere. And so one of the things that they attribute it to is like cultural and habits of people. So like industrialization. So for whatever reason, wildfires take away some of that carbon monoxide in areas where there's a lot of industrialization. How does that cancel each other out? Because there's more, because it's the burning of like fossil fuels and things like that. So I don't know how. Yeah. So 
I learned a lot about NASA in this research. Yeah, when we were going over our outline, Amber's, we were talking, Amber's like, well, what all do you have? I'm like, oh, I have this, this, and this. She's like, oh, well, most of my research is about NASA. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so NASA and NOAA play a big part in tracking fires. And what is NOAA? National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So um, they kind of got in a little bit of a fisticuff with the the president via Twitter couple. How this all got started was very interesting. In January of 1980, scientists Michael Matson and Jeff Dozier, working on NOAA satellite for environmental satellite data and information, uh, they created the AVHRR, so the Advanced Very High Resolution Radiometer. With this creation and with the satellite being up in space, they discovered some tiny bright spots on a satellite image of, in the Persian Gulf. It was a camp-sized fire, fire flares caused by burning of methane in oil wells. This marked the first time that such a fire was seen from space. And this was the start of a lot of fire research. So uh, Dozier would become the founding uh, dean of the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management of the University of California. He developed a mathematical method to distinguish small fires from other sources of heat. So it's the foundation for nearly all the subsequent satellite fire detection algorithms. So I don't know. I, 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 didn't, I don't even begin to understand all the algorithms and how that plays into it. <laughs> but when I was looking on the website to track fires, I'm like, why am I not seeing the Amazon fires on the map? So there's some key reasons why I didn't, because I was like, I think I know where the Amazon is. Why isn't that on fire? So there's some key things to note here. One, NASA does not track the size of a fire digitally on their maps. Instead, they track the number of fires. So I don't know what distincts itself from one fire or the next fire, or like, do they combine and like turn into one giant fire? So does that like just super fire? Yeah. And so, um, but I was like, do, do I not know where the Amazon is? Like when I was looking at the maps, because there's no lines to distinguish. Yeah. But it's like giant. I mean, right. it's, it's, right. I feel like it's hard to miss. Right. So it was during this time that I learned that the Amazon, it's not the heart of the Amazon rainforest that's burning. It's the fringes. Um, before we get into that, I'm going to kind of talk a little bit more about NASA and NOAA. So NASA has several different cameras on their satellites that track fires in different ways and so they have the Terra satellite which i believe they launched in 1999 and then they have the aqua satellite the advanced very high resolution radiometer the avhrr <laughs> i feel like the acronym is just as hard to say as the whole thing anyway it led to the design of the first instrument with uh, spectral bands explicitly designed to detect fires and then you also have the moderate resolution imaging spectro radiometer <laughs> which stands for modus and i think that's also on the terra satellite but the the white on nasa's maps show 30 fires per a thousand square thousand square miles and the orange detects 10 fires per a thousand square miles and then there's the, also the visible infrared imaging radiometer <laughs> and the joint polar satellite system uh, which produces two data streams one for nasa and one for noaa so a lot of big words together those create the operational data for the national weather service oh, okay so um 
So NASA, according to NASA, something is always burning. Yes, and then they've got the carbon monoxide stuff. It can also be a sign of seasonal patterns with the carbon monoxide or uh, human cultural patterns, agricultural burning, or land clearing. Okay, so the MOPIT system is what they use to track carbon monoxide, and that stands for the measurement of pollution in the troposphere. And that's the lower atmosphere and how it interacts with the land and ocean biospheres. It's like you knew that I was going to ask you what the troposphere was. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that down because I was like, oh, man, I think I learned this at one point in school. But, uh, man, like, coming back to this makes me realize, like, how much I don't know. But every episode makes me realize how much I don't know. So that's Pretty the much, beauty yeah. of it. Um, so carbon monoxide hinders the atmosphere's natural ability to rid itself of harmful pollutants. And that's why carbon monoxide tracking is really important. So the MOPIT uh, measures emitted and reflected radiance from the earth in three spectral bands. I don't entirely know what spectral bands are, but um, they mention a lot, so it sounds important. <laughs> but uh, And then there's also the Aster Advanced Spaceborne Thermal Emission and Reflection Radiometer, which is also used for uh, carbon monoxide. And the high-resolution image of the Earth is shown in four, 14 different wavelengths and of the electromagnetic spectrum, ranging from the visible and thermal and infrared spectrum. So uh, when I first came into the Air Force, I had to learn all of this, like wavelengths, frequencies, and what's visible and what's not. So part of what they're looking at is not visible to the human eye, uh, but it might th be things like ultraviolet or infrared, which some infrared is visible, but not all of it. So, so does the camera has a zoom lens? It does not collect data continuously. And and one of the reasons we had looked at wildfires to talk about is because the Amazon fires are going on right now, and not like Amazon, the people you get your packages from, right? But like the forests. <laughs> well, we actually had this on our list long before the Amazon wildfires started. So yeah, I think we had this on our list like before we even started. Um, so it's really. Um, interesting to when you really start diving into the amazon rainforest fires because you see things depicted in one way but then when you start diving in a little bit deeper it's not so straight and narrow and so like i mentioned before it's not the heart of the amazon rainforest that are burning it's the fringes and it's probably not being burned from a wildfire perspective i think it's actually being burned for agricultural gain, if you will. And and there's a lot of misinformation because, yes, there are fires going on in the Amazon, and yes, it's something that needs to be dealt with, but it's actually not the most fires that have ever happened in the Amazon. Right. And if as long as it's dealt with, it won't be catastrophic. Right. And so it's it's the number of wildfires are significantly down from a few decades ago, but in recent news, this is the most fires they've had in the most recent years. But also there's a lot of data that seems very misconstrued or that maybe the media don't quite understand themselves because we're definitely seeing a lot of numbers that were inconsistent. That makes me think that there's certain agencies that have an agenda one way or the other, whether they're pro, like, they're environmental advocates mm -hmm. or whether they're a business, a, a, you know, against environmental things because that takes away money. So it's very convoluted. So we saw a lot of different statistics about like how much carbon dioxide the Amazon forests um, take out of the 
atmosphere or out of the environment. And I think the important thing to see here is because like we saw the 20%, like the Amazon takes, uh, it absorbs 20% of the world's carbon dioxide. When I don't think that's entirely true, I think what that statistic was meant to say was the Amazon absorbs 20% of the forest's carbon dioxide, not the world's carbon dioxide. But when you see it in a short news article, they're talking about 20% of the world's carbon dioxide. So, oh, so this, the statistics I said said they, that the, rain, the Amazon rainforest provides 20% of the world's oxygen. But then they said that's not correct. Right. So, But the, the forests absorb um, carbon dioxide and yeah. whatnot. So. I'm just saying that 20% number has been bounced around in a lot of different ways. Yes. It's a very easy statistic. So it's a lot of uh, misinformation. <laughs> right, right. And so one of the things to keep in mind is how the global economy is playing into this right now. Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, he won on the platform that he was going to be an advocate for the farmers. And that means creating more arable land for the farmers. Now, one thing to keep in mind here is that the trade war between the United States and China significantly benefit Brazil. And that's why Brazil's been such an advocate of us having these trade wars with China. Because as a result of these trade wars, um, Brazil has moved up to like the number one or two spot for soy farmers and somewhere at the top for cow farmers as well. So they're becoming some of the top exporters for soy and beef. And so their economy depends heavily on agriculture, agricultural exports. So they might definitely have an agenda mm. to, to create more arable land. Now, since 2000 and 2014, or in that amount of time, they've doubled their amount of deforestation to create arable land for the farms. So arable land is anything that can be capable of being plowed to grow crops. Um, and something to also keep in mind is that Brazil is one of the biggest contributors of greenhouse gases coming in at 46%. And that's from the Washington Post. Yeah. While deforestation has increased, it's still below its historical average. So it's still not the worst it's ever been. So just keep that in mind also. Some other statistics about the Amazon wildfires is that the Amazon rainforest is roughly 2.1, it's 2.12 million square miles across Brazil. And then it also extends into Peru, Bolivia, Colombia, and other countries. And it is a considered a global defense to climate change. But as we've discussed, the numbers are kind of misconstrued so it was hard to get solid numbers on that and so here's the statistic i wrote down from the washington post article we're thinking about the amazon fires all wrong uh these maps show why by sergio oh his last name got wiped out on my rocket book <laughs> and so it says it takes 25 percent of the carbon dioxide absorbed by the world's forests as i mentioned earlier jer balsonero um He's widely blamed for his policies that exacerbate the problem. And so he's cut the budget for Brazil's EPA by nearly 24% and fired several employees. And um, this is by far Brazil's biggest domestic and international crisis. So some people have offered to intervene and offer their, their assistance, one being the French president, 
but also Germany and Norway. And so Germany and Norway were some of the first to offer financial assistance, um, equaling to about $72 million. So when they found out Bolsonaro was going to give some of that money to the soy farmers and car car farmers, cow farmers, they retracted that money because they didn't want it going to the farmers and they wanted it to go to the fighting of the fires which is ironic because that is who has the most to gain from these fires so i think it's interesting that that they pulled out given those circumstances i don't know the full situation obviously but um and then the french president offered the g7 summit i'm sorry offered 20 million dollars pay for fighting the fires but the european union and china get a lot of their agricultural imports from Brazil. So maybe one of the things they need to start considering is how cheap they get their produce for, because as we explored in the agricultural episode, you know, increasing the cost of produce can be devastating for certain areas, but decreasing the cost of produce doesn't have that much of an effect. Like people don't increase how much, Mm -hmm. how many vegetables they're eating because it's cheaper. And also the cost of produce has not gone up like since the eighties. So and you can find that all in our agricultural episode, which I, which episode was that? Three? There's two. Two? Okay. Two. Yeah, it's one of our first episodes. So Bolivian President Evo Morales suggested that international commitment wasn't enough. Quite frankly, I kind of agree. Um, he said, I appreciate the small, very small contribution of the G7. He's like, that's not aid? <laughs> Uh, it is a part of a shared responsibility of which we all have an obligation. So how Bolsonaro is handling this is a prime example of nationalism and how it's increasingly hand- handling international responses to global challenges such as climate change. And this was quoted by Mauricio Santora. I don't, I'm probably butchering that. He's a professor of international relations at the State University of Rio de Janeiro. And he said, this new polarization between nationalism and globalism is playing out in Brazil in the same way it's playing out in the U.S. and Europe. If you want to get access to international markets, you have to follow international rules. It's a trade off between nationalism and globalism. So that's just all something to keep in mind. And to be honest with you, I... I do kind of see where Bolsonaro is coming from with wanting to have the best interests of with wanting to have the best interests of soy farmers and cow farmers, but it's unfortunate that it's at the expense of something a global resource only they have access to in other countries in South America. So Yeah, I mean I could definitely see how Bolsonaro would want to appease the the farmers but it seems like they're getting a lot of money anyway so yeah. from being the best but i could be wrong i well, could be wrong and from what i've read is the farmers that are profiting are the farmers that are associated to your big farms and not necessarily like your small local farms right and as we also talked about in agriculture it's those small local farmers that are really going to put more into the local economy right um but the other thing you have to think about when you're talking about the Amazon forest is you're not just using losing resources, but there are indigenous people who are living inside there yes. and you're yes. displacing them. So it's not killing them. And I think Bolsonaro's had some pretty um, ignorant comments about those people. I don't I'm have sure anything written did. down, <laughs> but uh, pretty blatantly uh, disregarding their well-being. I believe that. Um, but... When it comes to wildfires, 
The main thing you should know is, as Smokey the Bear says, only you can prevent forest fires. Because um, Smokey the Bear actually turned 75 years old this year. Oh, snap. Um, and you can always follow the ABCs of Smokey the Bear, which is always be careful with fire. It takes me back to like The Bachelor this last year. There was like this guy <laughs> named Cam. And he was like ABC. He's like always be Cam. But he was kind of obnoxious. Obnoxious, yeah. So on that note, <laughs> I think that concludes today's episode. So you can, for more information, you can find us on Facebook at Why Blank Matters and Instagram and Twitter at Y underscore underscore matters. And um, until next time, see you next week.